You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. So we're continuing on this morning with our study in the Psalms, and this morning we're looking at Psalm 33. You'd say, why Psalm 33? Well, because last week we did Psalm 32, and next week we'll do Psalm 34. So keep your Bible turned to that passage, and I've entitled the message, the theme of the psalm, Why Worship? As historians look back on civilizations of the past, even civilizations from thousands of years ago, they find there are many aspects of culture which vary greatly from one another. The kinds of foods that different civilizations develop, the kinds of architecture, the ways they were governed, but there's one common thread that's found in every ancient civilization, no exceptions. They all had strong, deep religious ritual. Every civilization, even if they were thousands of kilometers apart and had no contact with each other, were marked by the importance they placed on worship. So whether we go to the ancient temples of Egypt, uh, whether we go to the pyramids of the Aztecs and the Mayas in the New World in in North America, South America, uh, whether it was the Baals or the Ashtoreths, the the idols that the neighbors of ancient Israel uh, worshipped, worship was key to all cultures and central to all existence. But someone might say, well, things have changed. Cultures are no longer marked by such religious behavior. And yes, I suppose to some extent in the West that's partly true. But worship still continues across cultures and across continents today, whether we look at the worldwide impact of Islam or the Eastern religions of Hinduism or Buddhism. uh, It impacts the whole world. Religious worship is not just a historic reality, it's actually still a present reality. This ever-present quest for meaning and worship has caused social scientists who study this kind of thing uh, to conclude that a desire for religious meaning, a desire for worship, a desire for that which is beyond ourselves um, is deeply embedded in the human personality. But but someone might object, well, but hasn't modern or postmodern education given up on worship? Hasn't enlightened secularism moved on? Well, yes and no. Secular culture has shifted its focus of worship. But we still worship what is ultimately important to us. We worship what we most desire. And so think about it for a minute. When you think about our culture, what does our culture desire? Well, I was thinking of a few things. I'm sure you can add to it. They desire success, influence, affirmation individualism, certainty. And these values drive our priorities and behaviors as a society. And so society looks for power, approval, comfort, control. These become the goals to seek and they become the values to worship. Ours is still a culture of worshipers because we are born worshipers at heart. The late theologian preacher Tim Keller, who we often quote around here, because he's quite quotable, he puts it this way, everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. 
And so we worship what we ultimately value. We are all worshipers. The question is, what will we worship? Blaise Pascal, who is the 17th century mathematician, philosopher, French mathematician, he pondered this issue long and hard. Why do people have this innate desire to worship? Why do they seek after that which will fill their hearts? And why do they feel empty when they simply seek satisfaction in things which are material? And here is his powerful insight, which you've probably heard before, but bears repeating. Said Pascal, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of all of us, in the heart of each person, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator, the one who made us, made known through Jesus Christ. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. So turn again this morning to Psalm 33. The psalmist here directs us as believers to worship the Lord because the Lord alone is worthy of the devotion and commitment of our heart. He alone is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough. He alone to us earlier. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, which was a small stringed instrument, maybe like a, a guitar-type instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. We're encouraged to worship the Lord, and in the beginning of this psalm, rather than telling us why we worship, it begins with how we worship. And there's three key descriptions that are noted here on how to worship. The first is to worship enthusiastically with shouts and loud singing. Secondly, it says we're to worship with freshness, with new songs. And thirdly, we're to worship skillfully with well-played musical instruments, the harp and the lyre. Enthusiastically, with freshness, and skillfully. Now, it's true there is a place for quiet, contemplative worship. It's true that old hymns are timeless, and I love them. And it's true that we can sing without instrumentation. But the psalmist wants to emphasize that our worship to the Lord is worthy of passion, enthusiasm, skill, and freshness. He's not imagining some kind of half-hearted worship. Heartfelt worship calls for wholehearted involvement. Now, just to be clear... The psalmist is not encouraging thoughtlessness and emotional, you know, emotionalism where it's just all hyped up. Ringing eardrums and 1,000-watt speakers do not necessarily mean better worship. And as we shall discover in the rest of this psalm, our enthusiastic worship is driven by rock-solid content. We worship with our understanding, and we worship with our hearts. The words that we sing capture our minds and move our emotions. One of the wonders of music is its ability to both move us intelligently, intellectually, and also move us emotionally. So look with me through the psalm, and we'll do kind of just a quick overview, and then we'll kind of get into the detail. So if in verse 1 to 3 we're encouraged to worship the Lord, he is the, the center of our worship. From verse 4 to 19, we're given the content of our worship. And the psalmist outlines four things that we can worship the Lord for. Verse 4 and 5, he says to worship the Lord because of who he is, upright, faithful, and just. Then in verse 6 to 9, he says we worship the Lord because he is the creator. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded 
and it stood fast. Then we come to verse 10 to 19. We worship the Lord because he has acted in history, and we'll look at some of the ways that he has done that. Not only is he the creator, but he is the savior. So we are called to worship the Lord because of who he is, because of what he has done. He's the creator, the sovereign, the sustainer, and the savior. And then look at verse 20 to 22. We worship the Lord because of what he does in our lives. And because he works in our lives, he is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of our trust and our commitment, says the psalmist. So now we've looked at the overall message of the psalm. Let's look in a little more detail. Come with me to verse 4 and 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Uh, Sorry, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So these verses begin to answer the question, why worship? And in particular, why worship the Lord? So we worship the Lord because of who he is, because of his character. The psalmist tells us here that his word is upright. That is, it is without deception. The picture here is of a ruling king who sends out a command, a decree to his people. And um, if it's the word of the king, it must be followed. That was the reality of the ancient world. If you didn't follow what the king said, you paid serious consequences. Now, there were some kings who were deceptive. They said one thing and they did another, which sounds terribly modern. But the Lord, his words are right. They're upright. They're true. What he says, he does. But look at verse 5. Not only is the Lord upright, but it says that his character is beyond all reproach. And there are four words here to describe the character of God. Faithfulness, that is consistent, unchanging. Righteousness, pure and true. Justice, impartial and fair. And steadfast love, that is he is merciful. Faithfulness, righteousness, justice, steadfast love. The gods of the nation... They demanded ritual immorality. Even some of the neighbors of Israel demanded child sacrifice. But the Lord is righteous and just. His anger stirs at that which is deceptive and wrong. But he is also faithful and loving, showing mercy to those who turn to him. Our Lord is not only just and righteous. If he were only that, we would be in big trouble because we don't meet those standards. But he's also faithful, patient, and loving us, providing us with salvation which we don't deserve. He is holy and perfect. We cannot stand in his presence on our own, and yet, thankfully, he is merciful and forgiving, steadfast love, so we celebrate. So why worship the Lord? Because the Lord is the only one who is completely faithful, righteous, just, and full of steadfast love. We worship the Lord because of his character, because of who he is. Continue with me, verse 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. We worship the Lord because he is the creator the creator of all that is, the creator of all that we see, the earth, the sky, the oceans, the entire host, all the stars of heaven, the universe. 
the gods and idols that surrounded Israel were concerned, they were very parochial, they were very local, they were concerned with their little piece of geography. But the Lord of Israel was the creator of all, of all the earth and all the universe, the creator of lands and spheres beyond what any of them in their little world could imagine. With his word, the darkness became light. With his word, the chaos of the waters were brought together in order. From the wonder of the galaxies and the stars to the mystery of atoms and molecules, from the massive to the minuscule, from disorder to order, from non-living to living, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What an amazing, simple, and powerful statement of the work of the Creator. But you know, it wasn't just ancient Israel that needed to remember this. Our society needs to remember this. Israel needed to be, remember, to be reminded of the incredible power of the Creator, but we live in a naturalistic, materialistic age when the wonder and mystery of creation and the wonder and mystery of the Creator is quite frankly denied. Carl Sagan, the host of the popular TV show of a few years ago called Or Ever Will Be, and that pretty well sums up the position of so much of academia today. The official view of much of established education is that non-life developed into life, that chaos developed into incredible design, all by itself. Without any outside guidance or direction, the only influencing factors are time and chance. The conclusion of materialistic, naturalistic evolution is this, that nature actually created nature. And that's a proposition which is incredibly confusing. G.K. Chesterton, who is a, a, a pithy writer of... Uh, of the previous century, said this, it's absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it's unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing, but then pretend it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. In a lighter but memorable quote, British astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle, who was a little bit of a, a freewheeler in his profession, but he, he was uh, very... Uh, very rewarded for his various um, discoveries. He had this to say about time and chance causing design. The chance that higher life forms might have emerged through evolutionary process, says Hoyle, is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747, or I guess a 787 these days. Dr. Francis Collins, who is the former director of the National Institute of Health, um, and he headed up the Genome Project, um, and he's the author of the book, which is well worth a read, called The Language of God. He writes in a thought-provoking way when he says this, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin. And that implies that before that, there was nothing. Now, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be someone outside of nature. A while ago, I came across this story, which I haven't forgot. And uh, the, the joys of the internet is you can do a little search and find it again. I couldn't remember where I first read it. It goes like this. Imagine a family of mice 
who lived all their lives in a large piano. To them in their piano world came the music of the instrument, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought there was someone who made the music, though invisible to them. Above yet close to them, they loved to think of the great player who they could not see. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned with some thoughtful news. He had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of various lengths which trembled and vibrated. They needed to revise their old belief. None but the most stubborn could any longer believe in an unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were the secret. Hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical universe. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, but I love this part. But the pianist continued to play. In the view from the mountains, there's a story to be told. In the crashing of the ocean, there's a power no man will ever hold. All the stars in the heaven decorate your handiwork, and like a mighty choir, they've come to celebrate your worth. Ah, this can so easily happen. Don't let me miss the glory. Don't let me miss the grace that all creation is singing to the honor of your name. Don't let me miss the wonder. Don't let me miss the grand design in the lightning and the thunder. Lord, open up my eyes. Don't let me miss the glory. Lord, open up my eyes. Don't let me miss the glory. You see, we worship the Lord not only because of his character. We worship him because of his power and his might, which was revealed in creation for anyone who has the eyes to see it. Don't let me miss the glory. Continue with me. Let's read verse 10 and 11 and uh, verse 16 to 19. We'll kind of compact this a little bit uh, just for sake of, just for sake of. <laughs> verse 10 and 11 says this, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And then it continues to develop that idea. And then we come down to verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We worship the Lord because of the glory of his creation, but these verses encourage us to worship the Lord because he is sovereign in history. He acts in human history. You see, empires come and empires go. Leaders rise and leaders fall. Never forget it. They're only here for a little while. But he brings the nations to nothing, says the psalmist. But the Lord stands forever. His plans to, is worthy of our honor and worship. Time and again, Israel is reminded of the Lord's sustaining power in their history. Each Passover, when they took the lamb and they roasted it and they ate it together, they remembered how the Lord had rescued them from the Egyptian pharaoh, how he had sustained them in the wilderness, and how with power he brought them into the promised land. I love the timeless words of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, 
where Isaiah speaks of the Lord's intervention in history, his sustaining strength for those who trust him. Isaiah 40, verse 23 says, It is the Lord who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. But he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, proud princes and rulers, prime ministers and presidents, at very best, they are all temporary. But there is a power that is greater. There is a power that is beyond human power. And as the people of Israel sang this psalm, they were reminded of that. Verse 10, that the Lord brings the counsels of the nations, even though they appear so powerful, he brings them to nothing. And he frustrates the plans of proud people. And as they continued to sing, they sang of the king that was not saved by his great army. They sang off the war horses and the chariots that did not rescue. And perhaps as they sang this, they may well have remembered the defeat of the great Assyrian army. They may have remembered the time that Jerusalem was delivered from death and famine. How the Lord rescued his people from what seemed to be an absolutely impossible situation. We, we looked into the Assyrians there a year or two ago when we studied through. And with their power and intimidation, they began to control most of the known world, most of the Middle East. They were based out in Nineveh, and they were known for their superior military skills. And they refined psychological warfare, which we'll see in a little bit in the story. Uh, but they did more than that. They, they also they, they kind of took torture to a new level. And when they captured a king who did not surrender, they just skinned him alive. That was the Assyrians. And they destroyed cultures. They were the first to start using mass deportation and slavery of the people they conquered. And in 722, the Assyrian armies come down from the north and they besiege northern Israel and they destroy Samaria and it's the end of the northern empire. And then around 701 BC, Sennacherib, the great Assyrian leader, he has his eyes set on Jerusalem and with his hordes of armies, he heads south to turn Jerusalem into pulp. And the story is a hugely important one in Israel's history. It's, it's so important, it's actually recorded in three large chunks of scripture which there's not a lot of stories fit into that category. 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 tells a story. 2 Chronicles 32 tells a story. And then Isaiah tells a story again, almost identically, in chapter 36 and 37. Hezekiah was the king in Jerusalem. And knowing what was coming, he prepared for the onslaught. But from a human perspective, things looked really dire. The powerful armies of Sennacherib, thousands and thousands of them, smashing everything before them. And now Jerusalem is next. Now, if you ever have an opportunity to visit Jerusalem, um, as we did a few years ago, one of the things I found really fascinating was the water systems in Jerusalem. And this is under the old city of David. And a lot of tourists miss this, and you don't want to miss it. Um, so you have to go way down through a shaft, about 100 feet down into the ground, which is called Warren's Shaft. And you come down to this opening here where Sharon is, is standing, which goes into a tunnel. It's about six feet high and three or four, a couple or three feet across. And this is part of the water systems that Hezekiah built when he realized he had a problem. He needed water to be in the city, and he needed to make sure the Assyrian armies didn't have water. 
So he stopped up this spring down in the Kidron Valley called the Gihon Spring, and he diverted the waters through this tunnel. So I'm not sure how exactly they did it, but they, they hammer through the rock here so they get out on the far side and the water flows into the pool of Siloam. Yeah, the same place where Jesus did a healing on down the way. Um, and if you're going there, it's, it's kind of neat. There's a, they had to hammer through. They started at each end. They had their picks. And one was 1,700 feet it went. If they had managed to get it a little straighter, if they'd had some equipment that Bert could give them, they might have kind of got it, you know, 1,200 feet. So they kind of zigzagged a bit because a bunch of the guys are at the far end hammering away, and they must have had, like, torches or candles, and they're hammering in the dark, and the other guys are going the other way. And finally, they met together, and the water started flowing. And the really cool part is you've got to make sure you're wearing your shorts and your flip-flops because the water is still flowing there today, um, and it depends on the time of the year. It can be six inches, eight inches, 18 inches. Water can be up to your knees. Um, and then it flows as it has been flowing for 2,700 years. Um, anyhow, Hezekiah did everything he could do, but it, it, it seemed terribly inadequate. You know, he, he strengthened the walls. He worked on the water system. The most powerful army on earth was threatening. Literally, the enemy was at the gates. They didn't call the movie that, but that's what it was. Let's look at the story together here, and I've, I've culled it from 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32, and you can read the whole thing at home. Sennacherib attacks Judah. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that is the year 701 B.C., Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. So he starts destroying all of the cities that are around Jerusalem. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him, what we were just talking about. And as Hezekiah expected, the threat for Jerusalem was real. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish, which was a city towards the coast with all his forces, he sent his uh, servants, his military leaders, his ambassadors to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of Assyria? Do you really think that's going to happen? And they, that is the Assyrian military uh, ambassadors, they shouted with a loud voice. So they're down below the wall in the language of Judah, that is Hebrew. They shouted to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them. A little psychological stuff here and terrify them in order that they might take the city. They wanted the people to revolt and surrender. Then Hezekiah's advisors, or his representatives who had gone to meet these Assyrians, said, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, the language of Assyria, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Assyrians said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed? Are you listening, guys? You're doomed to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. And don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And the answer was no. So when Hezekiah's advisors come back to the king and tell him the taunts of the Assyrians, 
Hezekiah is understandably overcome. He didn't know what to do, but he knew where to go in a day of great trouble. And as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth, a sign of, like, I don't know what to do. And he went to the house of the Lord. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it all out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, throned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear and open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And through the trusted prophet Isaiah, yeah, that was his advisor, the same guy that wrote the book. Through Isaiah, Hezekiah receives this incredible news. Then Isaiah, the prophet, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, the king of Israel, I've heard. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Then the news came to Hezekiah. The Assyrian army is in disarray, struck down, decimated, without a battle, apparently from a plague. What military power could not accomplish, what great armies, what war horses and chariots could not do, the Lord had done, and Jerusalem was safe. And here's what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria, and so he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down with the sword. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. Psalm 33, verse 18. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. We worship the Lord because of who he is, because of his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. We worship the Lord because of his wonder and majesty and creation. We worship the Lord because he has acted in history. But there is more. Come to Psalm 33 and verse 20. Let's read it together. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. We worship the Lord, and I think this is where a lot of us land. We worship the Lord because of what he has done in our lives. He is our hope. He is our help. He is our shield. Hezekiah's world, quite frankly, was in crisis. It all seemed so overwhelming, so frightening. Maybe I should say it all was so overwhelming and frightening. And perhaps you can relate to that experience, not knowing which way to turn. I certainly can. I've been there. Not knowing what to do when there's nowhere to go and nowhere to turn and nothing to do but to lay it all out before the Lord. And then there's this wonderful verse, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. When we're overwhelmed by guilt, when we're burdened down by our failure, what a blessing it is to know there's a place of help to experience the wonder of forgiveness once again, to come back to the cross and be reminded 
of what has been done to save us. I love this verse. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And then we come across this wonderful phrase, steadfast love. Look at verse 8. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 18, those who hope in his steadfast love. Finally, verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. In the Old Testament, we see the steadfast and patient love of God in spite of all the failures of Israel. Yes, they were disciplined. Yes, they were punished. But the Lord always had this steadfast love towards them. And as New Testament Christians, we see the steadfast love of God, and we see it in his greatest manifestation in the love of the Father as shown in Jesus Christ. I never cease to be amazed at the story of the prodigal son and the picture that that gives us of the father's love as seen in his love to that prodigal boy. As the young broken rebel returns, having wounded his father's heart, and he makes the long walk back from the pig pen, uncertain of what awaits him, and yet even when he's a long way off, the father sees him and he runs to him, to meet him, to embrace him, to forgive him, to restore him. And it reminds me of the father's love for me and his love for you, how deep it is seeking us, running to meet us, embracing us, restoring us. What a picture of the steadfast love of God as found in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul could say with John, could say with joy, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I, I think this psalm, it's interesting, all these different psalms, they come at us, and, and when I first started reading, when I'm going to prepare to give a little talk, I think, oh, Lord, what's this one about, right? And as I read, I thought, this one is all about worship. Why worship? We worship the Lord because of who he is. We worship because of the wonder of his creation. We, wonder, we worship him because he is sovereign in history. And we worship him for what he has done in our lives. He is our savior. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist closes the prayer with what is our desire. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we wait, as even as we hope in you. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonder and mystery that you display to us in creation. We thank you for your transforming power, which we have seen in history. O oh, Lord, my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the world your hands have made, your power throughout the universe displayed, we bow in worship and we sing in praise. But we thank you most of all for your gracious love, your steadfast love displayed in our Lord Jesus Christ. How on the cross he bled and died and gave his life for us. Lift our eyes in worship, lift our hearts in gratitude. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.